This is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I'm your host, Davey Crockett. Thanks. Thanks for coming. This is episode 117, the seventh part of the Ultra Running Stranger Things series. This episode will share the tragic story of the champion ultra runner Alice Robison, who was murdered during a multi day race in Ohio in 1897. Yes, true crime comes to Ultra Running History Podcast. This story has not been told for about 120 years. Do you like this podcast? Do you want me to continue uncovering these stories? You can help out by contributing a little each month by becoming an Ultra Running patron. Go to ultrarunninghistory.com slash member to sign up as a Patreon. That's ultrarunninghistory.com slash member. Thanks. Will do. On April 24th, 1897, ultra running or pedestrian champion Alice Robison was running in second place on the last day of a three-day race held at the 5th Street Skating Rink in East Liverpool, Ohio, with five runners. She was very intent on catching her longtime friend who was a few miles ahead of her. Needing a rest, she retired to her room provided at the Hotel Grand next door. That afternoon, a man came into town on a train from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The mustached man wore a new suit with a price tag still attached and a white hat with a black band. He went to the hotel and inquired where Alice was staying. He ascended the stairs and went to this third story room. Shortly after, a gunshot was heard. The porter of the hotel rushed into the room and found the woman on the floor bleeding from a gunshot wound in her head and saw the man leaning over her holding a revolver. How could this happen? An ultra runner was murdered during a race. Alice Robison's true name was Agnes Jane Jones. She was from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the oldest of 11 children, a daughter of a coal miner. She married very young to James Waters, a coal miner, and had three children and later divorced. In 1882, at the age of 22, she married, for the second time, Zachariah S. Robison. Alice was Zachariah's second wife. His first wife, Martha Alexandria, died a year earlier, leaving behind four children. Alice took on the role of mother and stepmother to all seven children ages 3 to 12, and then had two more of her own, for nine children in the home on a small Pennsylvania farm. Alice's new husband, Zachariah Robison, was born in 1851 and became a house painter. Once married to Alice in 1883, the Robison family moved from various places in the west suburbs of Pittsburgh across the Ohio River. Alice became the boss of the family and was in control of all the family finances. She worked hard as a washerwoman and a house cleaner. Both Zachariah and Alice had drinking problems and would get drunk, causing difficulties in the family. In 1887, Alice started to take boxing lessons. She was very strong and weighed about 165 pounds. Zachariah also took lessons and the two would box each other, 
He even sold their small house to help pay for lessons. Both became interested in following the sport of pedestrianism, and by 1889, Alice jumped in to compete. In 1889, at the age of 25, Alice joined the ranks of a dwindling female pedestrian sport. The female pedestrian heyday was back in 1879, when about 20 female six-day matches were held across America, involving about 140 starters. But several of the pioneers had continued to compete for more than a decade. A small group of women endurance walkers toured the country, putting on long-distance walking exhibitions and contests. And if they were successful, they could make a ton of money. And if they were failures, then they went home penniless. Alice made her pedestrian debut near her Pittsburgh home on February 21st, 1889, at a three-day, 36-hour walking match for the championship of Allegheny County against six other women for prizes totaling $250. Walking in Pittsburgh. It was held in the London Theater in Pittsburgh. The first day of the event was witnessed by about 3,000 people and, quote, everything passed off as smoothly and quietly as a church service. Alice did surprisingly well, although she was, quote, broken up in a terrific struggle for second place. It was reported, She is a somewhat heavy but courageous lady. Mrs. Robinson's heroic efforts are worthy the attention of men and women of superior pedestrian abilities. Alice finished in third place with 111 miles with her feet in sad condition. Despite the painful experience and after several months of recovery, Alice again competed. Alice's greatest race came in December 1890 at a 6-day, 12-hour-per-day race in Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania in the 9th Regiment Armory Building. The race began on December 1st, 1890, and Alice was crewed by her husband, Zachariah. The track in the armory building was 17 laps to a mile. The armory is admirably adapted for the exhibition and is well arranged for the comfort of the walkers and the spectators. Outside and inside of the oval track are numerous seats, and the walkers are seen to good advantage either by daylight or under the glare of the electric lights. Alice was described as, quote, a tall, black-eyed girl in red and black striped garment with short skirts and is the noisy one of the lot and a good stepper. The big surprise in the running field was the debut of Alice's 13-year-old daughter, Mary Jane Waters, who had the stage name of Happy Jarble. It was reported, Early in the day she showed signs of unwillingness, but was urged on and was pluckily gaining on her competitors by running at the top of her speed for several laps, cheered on by both walkers and spectators. Alice quickly built a big lead, reaching 51 miles during the first 12-hour day. When occasionally the orchestra strikes up an unusual spirited air, the walkers all became imbued with new life and fly around the track with swishing skirts and twinkling heels, a sight worth beholding. On the second day, Alice withdrew her daughter, worried that she could not handle the continued strain of the race. On the last day, Alice became drunk. It was reported. Alice Robison held a big lead easily. She got hilarious toward the close of the contest. Her trainer, 
husband having resource to liberal stimulants to keep up her strength. Although she might with safety have gone off the track early in the evening, she did not do it and kept steadily at work all night. Alice was the surprising winner with 252 miles, 27 miles ahead of second place. She won $150. She continued to race and bring her daughter to run 5 or 10 miles as a sideshow, probably bringing in some nice additional money. But at a 72-hour race, 6 days, 12 hours per day, in Baltimore, Maryland, the police showed up and ordered that the young girl be taken off the track because of her youth. Alice again did well, finishing second, reaching an impressive 238 miles. Alice was feisty in her races. In April 1892, she wanted to enter a race in Minneapolis, Minnesota, but was refused. Rejected. Race manager Messier said, Alice Robison was barred from the race because she has been guilty on several occasions of improper conduct on the track. I have seen her put off tracks twice for improper conduct. But Alice continued to compete in many races elsewhere in 1892 and 1893, including Washington, D.C., Chicago, Illinois, Detroit, Michigan, and Baltimore, Maryland, where she went over 264 miles. But then she took the next three years off as competitions further dwindled. Family life became a struggle. Zachariah's health declined with his drinking and smoking. Ellis brought in most of the family income, but was also helped by stepson Thomas Robison, who took up painting jobs with his father. In 1895, a young man, Chuck Stewart, aged 23, came into the lives of the Robisons. He was known by police in the area of being a troublemaker. He was convicted of burglary in 1891 and was in and out of the workhouse or prison eight times for being convicted of assault, battery, and disorderly conduct. He was generally lazy and did not hold down jobs. When he did work, he was a slate roofer and was said to be a big, good-looking man. Stewart started to visit the Robisons regularly and drink with them. He claimed to have no place to live, being thrown out of his house by his father because of his drinking. Alice took pity on him and wanted him to move in with the family, but Zachariah would not consent. Since Alice was the family boss, she let him move in anyway. He was pretty much of a freeloader, rarely taking on work, would come in drunk and sleep in late. Every few months, the three of them would go on a big drinking binge, when Alice would bring home as much as a gallon of liquor. As Zachariah became drunk, Alice and Stuart would even pour booze down his throat and then go out together, sometimes all night. Son, Thomas, became suspicious and warned his father that something was going on between Alice and Stuart. But Zachariah could not believe it. He loved her so much. When he confronted Alice, she scoffed at the idea, claiming that nothing could ever come between them and that Stuart had a transmittable disease anyway. Hmm, how did she know that? Alice decided that she wanted to make a pedestrian comeback and run in a race in East Liverpool, Ohio, about 60 miles away. Her longtime friend, Agnes Weigand, who had entered the race, invited her to go. Agnes's stage name was Aggie Harvey, 
And she was a very experienced pedestrian who held the world record for a six-day, eight-hours-per-day race distance of 200 miles. Alice asked Zachariah if she could go, and he consented. The race held at Fifth Street Skating Rink was rather disorganized. There was first a men's race the first three days, and then there was a women's race that started but only ran three and a half hours on the first day. By the next day, Robison was in second place, chasing her friend Agnes, who was only five laps ahead. She was confident that she would overtake her. It was reported, The scenes at the race during the week were disgraceful in the extreme. While Alice was away, Zachariah found a love letter to Stuart from Alice inside Stuart's coat pocket and read it. It had just arrived from the race and started. My darling, how I miss you. I hope you made it all right at the house. Let me know, dear darling. It is so hard to be without you. I love you better than my life, darling. Zachariah showed the letter to his son Thomas, who confirmed his suspicions that Alice had been unfaithful. Robison became distraught, could not concentrate on work, and left to go confront Alice in Ohio. Zachariah arrived at East Liverpool by train and immediately went to the Hotel Grand next door to the rink where the race was being held. He first got a shave from a barber and then took a half hour to figure out which room Alice was in. He finally knocked on the right door. Her friends George and Agnes Wagand were there. He went right in her room, and Alice spoke to him and told him she was glad to see him. She had been expecting him to come and help for the last day of the race. She asked how the folks were doing at home. His calm reply was, Who do you mean, your lover? Her friends left the room so they could be alone. Zachariah then confronted her about the letter. About ten minutes later, he went to the room of her friend Agnes. He asked her if Alice had been receiving letters from Stuart. Agnes later said, He said that she had been unfaithful and called her the vilest of names. While he was talking, Alice came to the door of the room and asked him to come to her room as she wanted to see him. They talked, came out, and Agnes warned Alice that she should stay away from him until he cooled down because she saw that he carried a revolver in his right hip pocket. Zachariah and George Wagand went out of the hotel to view the track in the rink and get some drinks at a saloon. While he was away, Alice, probably fearing that her husband would see more of her mail, went to tell the porter that if any mail came for her, that it should be delivered to Agnes. When Zachariah came back, he again went alone into Alice's room. A rattle was heard against the door, as if someone was thrown against it. Then a shot rang out. George Wagand had heard the shot, tried to get in the door, but it was locked. He went down and got George Perry and the hotel porter from the hotel bar to go with him to investigate. He said, I went to the room. Mrs. Robison was lying on the floor, and he was kneeling beside her, sponging her eyes. Robison said it was only a flesh wound, and I told him he had better give up the gun to Perry. Alice 
Alice was moaning and blood streaming from a hole in the corner of her right eye. The porter said, The woman lay on the floor. I walked up and saw the bullet hole in her head. Robison raised up and wiped the blood from her face. He asked Robison if she should live. He replied, Why, certainly. The only thing I am sorry about is that I came so wide of the mark. He then showed the porter and the others the letter that began, My Darling, explaining that it was the cause of the tragedy. A doctor was telephoned for, but it was clear that there was no hope. Zachariah showed no emotion. He went back over to where Alice lay, then leaned down and kissed her. He kept saying, It is only a flesh wound. She'll be all right in a little bit. When the doctor came, Zachariah mentioned that he did not want to pay for the bill. He was heard mumbling, This is what women get for trifling with their husbands. The police came, arrested Robison, and took him to the city hall prison. Within a half hour of the shooting, Alice was soon declared dead. Later, not knowing that Alice was dead, Robison told reporters, I never was so surprised in my life when the thing went off. I didn't know whether I had hurt her or not. She fell on the floor. Strangely, the race continued. Often the opinion was expressed that the place should be closed by the authorities. There was a crowd at the race Saturday night, and when a well-known resident asked a young man connected with the race why the place was not shut up in view of the tragedy, he brutally replied, Oh, a little thing like that shouldn't affect us. But the match was stopped by the police, and they detained all the participants as witnesses. The race manager, Wilson, quickly skipped out of town without paying the bills. The next day, Mayor Gilbert visited and informed Robison that his wife was dead. A hearing was held, and Robison pled not guilty to first-degree murder. Robison's 10-day trial started about two months later on June 15, 1879 in Lisbon, Ohio, and certainly was the trial of the year in the area. Multiple pages of details were carried daily in the local newspaper. Dozens of witnesses were called. The defense strategy initially was to try to prove that Robison was insane or that he was defending himself from an attack by Alice while they were alone in the hotel room. On the second day of the trial, the love letter from Alice to Chuck Stewart was read, and it was the first time Robison showed any emotion. On hearing the terms of endearment in the letter addressed to Stewart, Robison's form was shaken with sobs, and for five minutes he wept piteously. A doctor testified that he was not insane, although there was much discussion about the effects of lead poisoning from painting. The doctor concluded that he was in the early stages of paresis, which they said was paralysis of the gray matter of the brain, which sometimes caused delusions. Chuck Stewart was called to testify and asked about the infamous letter that Alice had sent him during the race from Hotel Grand on Hotel Stationery. Stewart said, I never got no letter like that. His testimony seemed to conflict with earlier statements. He looked half ashamed of himself as he took the stand. He stated a belief that Zachariah wrote the letter. Robison's face was bathed with tears as he returned to jail and he did not want to see anyone. As the second week of the trial opened, 
Robison took his seat with the same mechanical stare. He had nothing to say, and after carefully putting his hat under the chair, looked straight to the front. The prosecution's case was short, claiming that the evidence showed that he was guilty of murder in the first degree, and that he was not insane. He was called, quote, a wicked, jealous-hearted murderer. The defense claimed that Robison stood in that hotel room with the letter in one hand and the gun in the other about to shoot himself when Alice grabbed the gun, which accidentally went off causing her death. The judge would not allow the jury to consider second-degree murder or manslaughter, only premeditated first-degree murder. It was murder one or acquittal. After six hours of deliberations, the jury reached its verdict. They were at first split, five for manslaughter, five for second-degree murder, and only two for first-degree murder. But after eight ballots came to their unanimous decision. The foreman handed a sealed paper to the judge, and the clerk read that the prisoner was guilty of murder in the first degree. Robison did not move a muscle. He looked out of the window, and no man could tell that he was the person most interested in the words that had just been spoken. No one approached him. He sat alone. Later back in the jail cell, Robison said, putting down a Bible, The past four months are like a dream. My mind at times has seemed blank. I have been dazed, and I think it took something like the shock of the verdict to make me normal. I am innocent of killing my wife, but it was through me she died, whether intentional or not, and I feel that I loved her well enough to suffer death now for the harm I have done her. The defense immediately appealed for a new trial, claiming misconduct by the prosecution springing surprise witnesses including Chuck Stewart, who clearly committed perjury, and because new evidence had been found. After a hearing, a new trial was not granted. The judge then gave Robison his sentence. On the morning of November 26, before sunrise, a sufficient amount of electricity shall be passed through your body to cause your death. Robison did not flinch. He took a chew of tobacco from his mouth, threw it in the spittoon, and sat down. He later said he was willing to die because he had nothing to live for now that his family had been broken up. He continued to maintain that the killing was an accident. A letter written by Robison during the appeal trial was later found in his jail cell. He wrote strangely, I can look upon this as a mysterious blessing to my wife. If this had not occurred... My poor wife would have met a fate a thousand times worse than she died. I now truly believe she was taken by the mercy of God, for she would have gone to the lowest depths of sin, while I would have drunk myself into my grave. When I reach the other shore, I believe hers will be the first hand to greet me. A couple of months later, the judge claimed that a technical error was found in the proceedings of the case, and he referred the matter to the circuit court. A book of 891 pages, five inches thick, was sent to the court. In the meantime, Robison was the model prisoner in the Columbus Penitentiary. He mostly kept to himself reading, and he received a few letters from his family and friends. 
On October 5, 1897, the circuit court decided that Robison should be granted a new trial. The court found error on the part of Judge Smith in refusing Robison a new trial when his conviction was accomplished in part on evidence of Chuck Stewart, whose perjury on the witness stand was so apparent. The new trial date was set for a month later. But then something unexpected happened. A plea deal was made and Robison pled guilty of murder in the second degree. He was sentenced to life in prison. The prosecutor still believed that he was guilty of first-degree murder, but knew that the witnesses were scattered across the country and it would be impossible to gather them in time for the new trial. At the sentencing, Robison again declared that he had no intention of injuring his wife when he walked into her hotel room. He broke down with emotion when he made his statement. At the Columbus, Ohio Penitentiary, Robison was assigned to work in the painting department and quickly became its superintendent. In 1900, at the age of 49, when the 150-foot-high water tower needed painting, he insisted on being the only one to do the dangerous job, suspended on ropes and pulleys, not wanting the young men with families, who would soon be released, to put themselves into danger. He believed that if he fell and died, no one would mourn him. The other prisoners cheered him. Every day for the past week, Robison could be seen on the top of the water tower, working away, apparently as self-possessed as if he were painting a garden fence. Later in 1900, he became too sick to work, affected by his lead poisoning disease. He was such a model prisoner that public opinion started to express the idea that he should be pardoned. In 1902, Ohio politicians started to endorse an application for a pardon, and his son Thomas hired a lawyer for him. The warden even took him out of prison occasionally to paint his house. Alice's family supported the pardon application. It was said that because of his illness, he would only live for a few more years. The pardons board turned down the application because one person on the board objected stating that Robison had not yet been sufficiently punished. By the end of 1903, another push was made for a rehearing. Letters from Robison's original jury and judge were obtained supporting a parole. On July 14, 1904, after being in prison for seven years, the pardon board recommended that his sentence be commuted to 11 years and that he be paroled immediately. He was released. Robison went to live quietly with his son Edward, who worked for the railroad in Denora, Pennsylvania, 25 miles south of Pittsburgh. Zachariah S. Robison died September 9, 1906, in Mercy Hospital at Pittsburgh at the age of 54 from alcoholism and lead poisoning. He was buried in Bealsville Cemetery where his first wife and other family members were buried. Alice Robison has been forgotten for more than a century. She has hundreds of descendants living today who never knew the tragic story of their famous ultra-running great-great-great-grandmother, Alice Robison. Stay tuned for more ultra-running Stranger Things. 
with that, this is Davy Crockett, and this is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I hope you run fast and far, enjoy life, get outdoors, and most of all, stay safe and don't take unnecessary chances.